Welcome to episode five of Thinking Out Loud. Well, today's uh, podcast is going to be focused on something I've been thinking about for a day or two. But I was trying to figure out or get a, a construct to wrap my ideas around. And then suddenly yesterday, I came across a tweet. And the tweet we'll get into in a couple of minutes. But basically, I've been thinking a lot recently about the Chinese Communist Party. And how for the last two months, they've basically got a, a free ride in Western media, as most people's focus and attention is on the US presidential election and the coronavirus, coronavirus responses in various countries as we see a second wave. And in some cases, might even be a third wave of coronavirus spreading through Europe and the United States. But through this time, the Chinese Communist Party's influence has been expanding. Unnoticed or unreported, and unreported probably, a way of saying it. And I just wanted to focus it in today, and how I describe it is, is, I don't know, people that have children or young children, and, you know, you might be driving somewhere, and there's a load of noise in the back of the car, and there, it's a, there, a lot of chatter, and, you know, you're driving, and you're trying to keep them, you know, entertained so you might a game we used to play is you know count pick a color and count that meant count the number 20 cars of that color often we pick red so i might say to my son will you pick 20 will you count how many red cars there are as we're driving and when you get to 20 tell me or something along those lines so when you'd be telling them to do it you'd also be kind of doing it yourself to see how much kind of free time you have to start off again but I suppose what I'd say is that when you start looking at cars like that when you're driving you start to notice all the red cars and you might say to yourself oh well there's a lot of red cars isn't there I never noticed them before and that's a popular color or whatever it might be but I suppose the point is when you're driving you don't really notice or comment to yourself about the different color cars you've passed probably can't remember any particular color car from your last driving experience. Well, I can't anyway. But so to me, the Chinese Communist Party is a bit like that game. Once you kind of spot what they're doing and how they're doing it, you keep noticing it every time you see, and every time you see it again. Now, there's good and bad points to this. You don't want to spend your, you don't want to be walking down to the shop and thinking you're seeing communists jumping out of a bush, but. It's useful in the sense that once you see it, it's it's very plain. 
as to what they are doing, or at least it seems plain to me, and what the kind of strategy is. So for today's episode, I wanted to talk about Taylor Swift, the musician and global superstar. Now you might say, what has Taylor Swift got with the Chinese Communist Party? Well, let's have a look. So as I was saying before, um, I think people should start to look at the Global Times and the China Daily if they're interested in this subject. They have English language versions of both papers and they have English language Twitter accounts. And they basically promote Chinese Communist Party propaganda. You'll get some stories, you know, that are pretty straight. But for the last seven months, it's been pretty much filled with things they're looking to promote, things they're looking to denounce, and things they don't, things they're looking to hide. And so, as I was going through my feed yesterday, I saw this one they had about Taylor Swift, and I'll read it for pre-sales for U.S. singer Taylor Swift's new album, Folklore kicked off in China on Wednesday to the cheers of Chinese fans. The pop singer, possessing 9.9 million Sina Weibo followers, uploaded a video clip on Weibo to promote her album and related merchandise. Now, so when I came across that, I thought to myself two things. What are the Chinese Communist Party looking to achieve by promoting Taylor Swift's new album? Why do they give her access to the Chinese market? And what's basically what's in it for the Chinese Communist Party? Now, that might be a highly cynical view of a global superstar who is probably promoting her album in 150 different countries around the world. So some might say, well, why wouldn't the Chinese media pick up on it? Well, the reason I'd say the Chinese media wouldn't pick up on it is there's always has to be something in it for them. So I thought to myself, well, let's see if we can prove this point. Does this... Or is this just some sort of, you know, anti-CCP bias that I have that I can't get rid of? So we shall see. So the first thing to note is I know very little about Taylor Swift. So that should come as no surprise to anyone that knows me. So I looked up, so I did a quick search, first of all, on Wikipedia. Because what I was interested to find out is who manages her. Who's her management company? How did it all start? So to that end, uh, Taylor Swift was discovered as a 15-year-old, ta- hugely talented, more kind of a country and western singer when she was a teenager, but she had huge talent and ability. And by the age of 18, she'd won her first Grammy, and her second album was like a global phenomenon, apparently. That's what Wikipedia says. So who signed her? So I found out that basically that the company that signed her was a record label called Big Machine Group and that was run by a guy called Scott Bruschetta. Now, by all accounts, they had a fairly decent relationship for most of their time. But again, as, as a global superstar, what all that really means is that she was an artist who went from making millions to 10 million to hundreds of millions. And she's probably looking at billions at this stage. So in essence, she's a product for a lot of, you know, business people that are looking at her, you know, investing in her or managing her or this kind of thing. So in essence, she's a, a multi-billion dollar pro- product or company. Company is a better word rather than product. That's probably the right way of saying it. But she's a multi-billion dollar company. So I want, normally when this happens, because it's like whether you get a good footballer or a good actor or somebody whose name 
is recognized globally for whatever their skill is. Once the money gets to these levels, there's usually division at some point along the journey. So I did a bit of digging and I found out that pretty much things went fine for Taylor Swift until 2018 when she joined Universal Music Group, leaving behind her old record label. So I came across an article that I found highly interesting that is from The Guardian. It's about six months old. It's entitled Taylor Swift Disowns a New Live Album, calling it Shameless Greed. So I was reading this. Why? How could she be disowning an album? But therein lies the problem. Taylor's, and I'm just going to read this article. It's quite short, but I think it's revealing, especially in, in the political end of it. Taylor Swift has disowned a new live album released under her name, calling it Tasteless and Shameless Greed amid the coronavirus outbreak. The album Live from the Clear Channel, Stripped, 2008, was recorded when Swift was 18 around the release of her Grammy-winning second album, Fearless. The live album has been released by Big Machine, Swift's former label, that was bought by music manager Scooter Braun from its founder, Scott Braschetta. Swift has frequently criticised Braun and Braschetta, leading Braun to allege death threats from fans to his family, and is planning to re-record and re-release her six albums put out by Big Machine to regain some control over her back catalogue. In a post on Instagram, Swift said, This release is not approved by me. It looks to me like Scooter Braun and his financial backers, 23 Capital, Alex Soros, and the Soros family and the Carlyle Group have seen the latest balance sheets and, re and realized that paying $330 million wasn't exactly a wise choice and they need money. So what she means there is that this 20 Scooter Brown, 23 Capital, Alex Soros, the Soros family, Carlyle Group purchased Big Machine from Scott Bruschetta for $330 million. And the reason that probably... The price tag is to do with the fact that Big Machine owned the back catalogue of six albums belonged to Taylor Swift. So there'd be huge royalties involved in owning something like that. So any time, normally when, a, when an artist re releases a new song or album, it triggers, it triggers an increased level of sales of their back catalogue. So in this instance, it seems that... Um, Taylor Swift doesn't outright own her back catalogue. Now, that mightn't be nefarious as it sounds. It's probably Taylor Swift, you know, if she was 15 or 18 years of age, 15 years of age when she got signed, she probably did a renegotiation after the success of maybe one or two albums. It was probably part of a new deal that she would have signed with Big Machine. So she would have got some payment for it, but she probably sold it away not realizing the value of it and this is the thing which you find and I, th that's my own opinion but this is the thing you find with talented teenagers that are kind of globally recognized is that they, ha they don't have the education they don't have the support structure maybe they don't have the knowledge how the world works and you know stuff like this can happen so it's probably reading this it sounds like um she saw that price tag at $330 million that Scott Brachetta sold the company for. And she's basically probably thinking to herself, this dude's after selling a company for $300 million and it basically on the back of my six albums. And I'm not getting anything up. So, 
But the interesting th- thing to me is that Alex Soros and the Soros family are involved in this and they're huge Democratic backers. That's not, you know, that's nothing to do with Taylor Swift. But it's to do, it's a sign of the fact that 23 Capital, Alex Soros and this Carlisle group, they're hugely backers of the Democratic Party. And some would argue a lot of the Antifa stuff. They're huge investors in in more state and local level politics as well, where the sources have had um, a lot of influences in the election of district attorneys or prosecutors in various states around the United States. And we're seeing that every day, the influence of these prosecutors now in the election where they're focused, where their focus is in, in terms of pursuing crimes at court level. So a lot of Republicans, um, I have a huge issue that, you know, a lot of the riots that have been going on in the United States over, you know, the last four or five months, one of the big problems they have is that when they arrest people, there's no bail, they're back on the streets once they're processed, there's no jail time, and there is no incentive or disincentive for these people to just go back out rioting night after night after night because there's no, there is no penalty. And you're seeing it particularly in places like New York, Portland, it happened in Minneapolis, you're even in Philadelphia. I, I discovered today the, the the Philly riots that have been going on for two nights, the last two nights, that the police chief in Philadelphia, his, he was previously the police chief in Portland prior to this post. So you can imagine what a law, what type of a law, law and order guy he is. So anyway, I got to this article and I was thinking, okay, so Taylor Swift left her record label in 2018. She's now with Universal Music Group and this her old company owns six of her albums and they were funded by, they're, they're among the people that are on it are probably the Soros family and the Carlyle Group who have, among other things, huge, inv- they're basically investment vehicles They and they invest in entertainment and stuff, you know, other commodities that are broadly similar but a lot of their investments are in China so I was thinking when I saw Alex Soros and Carlite Groups I said I'm onto something here they're probably they're probably connected into China in some way and then I discovered oh Taylor Swift's with Universal Music so this brought me down a little bit of a dead alley other than it is good to know that it's useful to know that the Soros's are kind of heavy investors in the entertainment industry. So I backed out of that and I thought, okay, so we better do some due diligence on Universal Music Group. So Universal Music Group signed Taylor Swift 2018. And the guy that runs Universal Music Group is a fella called Lucian Grange. And I think he's in the UK. And Universal, we've all heard of Universal Studios. This is the music branch of their this is the music branch of Universal Studio, uh, you know, their music department, if you like. And so I thought, I wasn't really hopeful of finding anything going down this lane. But lo and behold, I discovered two things. The first thing that I discovered is that I was looking up Luce, uh, this Lucian Grange character. When I did a search in him, I s- discovered the following. And this is an article from the Music Business Worldwide site. And it's kind of a, some sort of an interview with Sir Lucian Grange uh, in, the, in that 
publication, but it's from December 31st, 2019. Earlier today, the biggest music biz story of the year broke. A consortium led by China's Tencent Holdings has inked an agreement to purchase a 10% stake in Universal Music Group for over $3 billion. Two other key elements of the deal. One, the consortium can, over the next 12 months, buy a further 10% stake. And two, majority-owned subsidiary Tencent Music Entertainment is also in separate discussions to acquire a minority stake in Universal's operations in Greater China. So we'll stop there. Now that, to me, says... Wow. Okay, so we have this Chinese investment holding company, Tencent. If any, if any of you people are tech savvy, you'll know that Tencent's, Tencent's will be a name that's familiar to a lot of people. But we'll go into that next. So here we go. We're on to something now because basically Universal Music Group are 10% owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Whoa, 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 I hear you say that. Okay, that's, you know, taking a jump there. So, but let me prove the point. Tencent Holdings is like another one of these kind of investment vehicle, technology investment vehicles, Chinese technology investment vehicles. Now, can I actually prove that they're linked kind of pretty directly to the Chinese Communist Party? Well, let's see if I can. So... That led me to go looking for Tencent Holdings, do some kind of diligence on them. Now, just for anyone that doesn't know, I'll just give you a quick overview of what Tencent Holdings do. Tencent Holdings Limited, also known as Tencent, is a Chinese multinational technology conglomerate holding company. Founded in 1998, its subsidiaries globally market various internet-related services and products, including in entertainment, Artificial intelligence and other technology. Okay, Tencent is the largest video game vendor, world's largest video game vendor, as well as the, one of the most financially valuable companies in China. Okay, as if you go to Wikipedia, you'll see a nice picture of their huge skyscrapers in Shenzhen. Now, I'm just going to skip down here because I was even shocked about all of the stuff that they have their fingers in. And I'm just going to skip down to it. Tencent Holdings has invested in a number of non-Chinese game publishers and developers since 2018, ranging from minority shares to full control of companies. Through these investments, Tencent is considered the largest video game company in the world as of March 2018. Now, just get a load of this, folks, of what they own. Full ownership ownership of Riot Games, the American developers of Valorant and League of Legends. Full ownership of Norwegian publisher Funcom. Full ownership of Swedish developer Sharkmob, founded in 2017. 80% ownership in New Zealand company Grinding Gear Games, developers of Path of Exile. 84% ownership of Finnish mobile game developer Supercell, makers of Clash of Clans and Clash Royale. 40% ownership of American developers Epic Games the developer of popular online game Fortnite and widely used proprietary Unreal game engine. 20% ownership of Japanese publisher and developer Marvelous, which owns G-Mode. So that's uh, that's the first six, right? Now I want to go down to something that's very interesting at the end. There's a load of other minority shareholders in American software companies. 
and stuff like that. But it also has an inv- capital investment in Reddit, which I never knew. Minority share in develop uh, game developer Jaeger development. And there was one other thing that I wanted to show where they had an investment. It's um, it mentions their Universal Group investment here and the Wikipedia page, but the Tencent own Weibo confirmed that because I saw. We'll come back to the Weibo because that's what's in my head as we're going along. So, so what you might say there is okay. So they've they're they're an investment company. They're look they make all these investments in you know entertainment and gaming and that kind of stuff. But what like you know so so do many um so do many companies. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Okay, that you know. Let's see as we go along. Okay, so what I wanted to talk about and I couldn't find it was that they are also the owners of WeChat, is a social mobile application with voice and text messaging timelines and several social features like Drift Now we're all aware of WeChat because that's their kind of WhatsApp messaging system in China and it's had hugely controversial um, press coverage due to the fact of that it's basically used to surveil Chinese citizens. Now, with their knowledge, but it's we'll go through how they've done that or how they came to do that. But so at this point, if we recap, is that we have this Universal Music Group who've invested in Taylor Swift. Now we discover that Ten Cent at the end of December two thousand nineteen met a ten percent took 10% ownership with the option to buy another 10% of Universal Ownership, Universal Music Group. Uh, so now we know what Tencent invest in. Huge, huge investors in the gaming and entertainment software. And this ties into what they're really trying to do is get access to, get access to the intellectual property in terms of developing their own stuff, their own software. So what a lot of people would do in that case, and it's not that it's illegal or anything in this regard, is that they would make investments in certain companies, like majority investments in companies. They buy the people, they buy the software, they buy the technology, and they buy the proprietary stuff. So we can see Tencent is a huge investor in this, and it's one of the biggest revenue generators in China. So, so far, so good. So that led me to believe, well, okay, can we actually link any of this to, you know, anything that they're doing wrong? And that brought me to a Financial Times article from 2018. And it basically goes into the Chinese Communist Party's investment into big tech, how it became entangled with big tech. And it was a strategy of the CCP to start acquiring more and more software companies and entertainment business and generally um, products and development in those areas. So I'm just going to read this article that was written in 2018 Financial Times. And it's not going to just bore you by reading stuff, but it's for a reason. So here we go. In China, a national identity card is required for almost everything, from buying a train ticket to opening a bank account to using an internet. 
They are also now part of a pioneering experiment in the use of facial recognition. In a scheme that started last year in the southern city of Guangzhou, the Chinese government is allowing users of WeChat to link their ID cards to the ubiquitous social media app created by tech titan Tencent. By scanning their faces with WeChat chat app, with WeChat app, users can obtain a digital ID that they use to register for a variety of service services. For Tencent, there is a further upside to the scheme. The owner of WeChat is becoming the repository for another vast store of data about Chinese citizens. The pilot project, due to be rolled out around the country, highlights one of the most intriguing aspects of China's headlong push into the world of artificial intelligence and other frontier technology. The relationship between the Chinese Communist Party and the country's ambitious and enormous tech companies. So, let's have a think about that. because. Now we're in 2020. That's at this at this moment in time. That's that kind of project on project or experiment in Guangzhou, or however you pronounce that Chinese city, has been rolled out uh, across the country to great dismay in the world. And we saw that most recently at the outbreak of the coronavirus, where one of the first doctors who tried to get word out about this unknown pneumonia virus that was um, breaking out in Wuhan was arrested and charged with spreading false information. And that was the doctor who subsequently died from the coronavirus. And what happened there was, how he got caught, was he was telling his other doctor friends in a WeChat about what was going on. So from the time of that article, they've taken... What Tencent and the Chinese Communist Parties have done is that in order to get, you need an ID card for everything in China. And now that they've linked basically your ID card with your WeChat, so you take a picture of yourself in WeChat and it can, you get some sort of a digital ID. Now the Chinese Communist Party have you linked to your phone, your, you know, your WeChat account and they have access to it. The argument is they have access to everything and have an ability to basically it's not that they're watching people every day of the week, it's just that if they need to zone in on somebody, if the flashlight in the forest needs to be focused in a certain direction, they can get once it's focused on you, they can get all your information. So I thought that was, so that's now starting to look like Tencent and the Chinese government are quite closely linked together and that this rollout of the national identity card back in 2018 is part of a strategy by the Chinese government and Tencent are the company that they're using to implement that strategy. So anyway, do we have, the question is, do we have any further kind of proof that would make our case for us in terms of like, pretty clear after reading that Financial Times article that Tencent's Chinese Communist Party are very intertwined. So we're just going to do, as I'm thinking here now, I'm just going to do a search on who's the CEO of Tencent. Ah, yes. Jeez. Right. So the CEO of Tencent, 
this could you couldn't make this up now I, I, this shows you how much research i do because i just thought instead of having this researched and ready to go like a proper proper podcaster i am googling it and i can see that the reason i'm laughing is that this name is recognizable to me is ma hao teng but he's also known as pony ma and pony ma chairs chinese internet giant tencent holdings which ranks among the nation's largest businesses by market market capitalization tencent's popular social messaging app wechat has one, more than one billion users the group's listed its music streaming subsidiary tencent music on the new york stock exchange in december 2018 in, in contrast to his outgoing rival at alibaba who who happens to be called to the to the western people we call him jack ma this fellow's called pony ma and he's the complete opposite of jack ma he tries to keep a low profile that befits his engineering background it befits his chinese communist party background also because here we go um as far as i'm aware pony ma is a high-ranking chinese communist party member let me just see if i'm right so he was born going down we'll just skip down here now politics yes According to the official Tencent website, Ma is the deputy of the 5th Shenzhen Municipal People's Congress and served in the 12th National People's Congress. Speaking of censorship at a tech conference in Singapore, Ma was quoted as saying, In terms of information security management, online companies from any country must abide by a defined set of criteria and act responsibly. Otherwise, it might lead to hearsay libel and argument among citizens not to mention countries yeah a defined set of criteria hmm. so there you go it's this is it's actually i knew he was a member of the chinese um communist party but uh i didn't know he was so public about it but let's see what the just to prove like the national people's congress is the highest kind of organ of state power and it it's kind of the national legislature of the People's Republic of China. It has, you know, has about 3,000 members in it. So it's a very... Now, 3,000 members sounds a lot. But in a country of 1.4 billion people, it's the it's the 0.1%. It's the point point 0.001% of Chinese people. So you don't get onto that unless you're an approved figure, like you're... You're you're an asset of the Chinese, the inner Chinese Communist Party. So obviously, the chief executive of Tencent is a high is a high ranking member of the of the Chinese Communist Party. So need we say more? So I wasn't. That's that's a bit of a cherry on top of this story. What can we say if we go back to our tweet? And my argument was that there's always a reason why. The Chinese Communist Party do anything, and there's always a reason why, a particular reason why the Global Times will promote anything outside of China, like Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift's new album. So what do we know now? We know that Taylor Swift's management company, Universal Music Group, have at least a ten percent, are ten percent owned by Tencent, with an option to become be with the option of becoming a 20% owner which in reality would make them probably i don't know this for a fact but probably makes them the single largest shareholder in 
uh, Universal Music Group. Can you imagine just how much power that gives you to implement censorship? Can you imagine some sort of an edgy rapper or, you know, somebody with, you know, lyrics that aren't kind of mainstream getting signed by Universal Music Group or if they did get signed, that, that they would be uh, let loose in the Chinese public? Uh, I don't think so. So... The thing is here, like Taylor Swift probably doesn't realize the ramifications of the fact she signed with Universal Music. The chances are, and this is the sad fact is, even if she'd stayed with her original um her original record label, they ended up, you know, they were probably a smaller small enough label. This a, you know, a bigger holding company came in and bought big that big machine group and they had their they had their own ties in China themselves through that Carlisle group and Alex Soros, who, as far as I'm aware, is the son of George Soros. So, like, what chance does anybody, any talented youth in the music industry have, you know, once they once they go global? Because the fact of the matter is, aside from her music, Taylor Swift has about 700 million followers between twi- Twitter, fo- uh, Facebook and, you know, Instagram. She's hugely influential. So in terms of the Chinese propaganda is that, you know, the China, she gives, she, her brand gives credibility to the way the Chinese Communist Party run China, to their own people. And also to, to, you know, the wider world is if, you know, if the biggest movie stars, the biggest athletes, the biggest musicians lend their name to companies who are invested in that regime. It gives them legitimacy and it gives them legitimacy to, you know, I don't know what Taylor Swift's personal views on. She might know too much about China. Maybe she does. I don't know. But, you know, I think the world's eyes are open to the human rights abuses that are going on in China with the Uyghurs, with the House Christians, with the Buddhists, you know, huge re-education, as the Chinese call it, where we call it as, you know, concentration camps in the West of what they're doing with those populations. And it's not like hundreds. It's, you know, I've I've read reports that put the estimation, like it's between three and four million people that are in the, that are in these camps or have passed through these camps. And it's like I said about the red cars, once you see them, it's hard to unsee them. So we'll bring that little section to a close. I'm sorry, I apologize if that went on a bit long, but I think it was worth well, it was worthwhile to me in the sense that it proves a point to me that there's always a reason the Global Times are promoting somebody from outside of China, and that they're they in this case they've made a heavy investment in Taylor Swift through Tencent and you know maybe they haven't utilized maybe they haven't compromised her yet or the the that brand but they have believe you me they have plans to they have plans to whatever they may whatever they may be so what I'm just going to do now is a little roundup and just bring it back to the uh, US elections for a, you know, just for briefly for a couple of minutes, because I'll do a roundup. I don't want to be like a broken record every time I do a podcast on the US election. We'll sure be doing 
another one or two that are more detailed. But I just wanted to bring you up to date on the state of play in the US. So when I looked at this this morning, based on the end of day figures from yesterday, the United States had 75 million people had voted in the United States. That's a huge number. And it's also, uh, you know, it's about 50% of what I'm expecting the final figure to be. I could be, if anything, I'm on the low side of how many people are going to vote. I think around 150 million. Uh, I like the... The appetite for this election, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Um, just to give you an example, from that elect project um, website that I spoke about in the last podcast, where they're pulling in the data from all 50 states as it's being released to the State Board of Elections or the Department of States, state in each state. So actually... As I'm looking at it now, 79 million people have voted. Now, just a breakdown of that. 27 million have voted in person. 51 million have voted by by mail-in ballot. Now, that is a massive mail-in ballot figure. And that, you know, it could come down to how many of those ballots are going to be 100%. What's the rejection rate on them likely to be? So the state of the play at the moment is any of the ballots... Every ballot in that 51 million has been has gone through one level of check in terms of it's been approved to a certain degree. There's nothing, there's no obvious tampering on it. And whatever's, you know, on the, the return envelope is past a first look. But from what I understand, each state have their own different methods of what's in the ballot in terms of um, different signatures that's required, X, Y, and Z. So they have to be opened to count and also they have to be examined for you know fraud that signatures match all this kind of stuff so you know the reject even if there even if there was only a one percent reject rate and i would say given that the united states mailed out ballots here there and everywhere i would say even if there was a one percent rejection rate that's 500 that's 500, it's half a million votes that could be lost. Like That could win you three states. <clears throat> so, well, that's to bear in mind. The other thing to bear in mind is the in-person vote, as the in-person voting has started to pick up in Florida, Texas, California, New York, the rate of return of mail-in ballots is slowing down, which kind of makes And the only other thing to notice, there are 39 million outstanding mail ballots that could potentially be sent back. Now, it would be highly unusual if if 90 million mail ballots were sent out and 90 million mail ballots were returned because, you know, there's been huge errors already in terms of the voter register in a lot of these states are, you know, out by a lot. People move, people move state, they move within states, they, you know, there's, you know, there would be a percent, you wouldn't be expecting anything more, anything higher than 75 or 80% of that 90 million to get returned. But what we can see at the moment is 50 million, 51 million of 90 million ballots have already been returned and they have another, depending on what state you're in, you have another two or three days to return the ones that are left out there, and in some states, you have another 10 days to return it. So 
they'll be counting ballots for a long time on that end. But based on what I'm seeing is there has been a massive increase in the not a massive, but there's been a significant increase in the population of the voting age population in the last four years. Nearly every state I'm looking at has a ten to has nearly a ten or twelve percent increase in the number of registered voters that's on the registers. So whether it's the states have been getting ready for this during the coronavirus lockdown and and kind of updating the voting registers, I don't know, but um, I I'm expecting there to be 150 million ab- and above voters. There was in the region of 140, 135 to 140 in the last one. So maybe like it's gonna be it's gonna be 150 or 160 at least. That's the that's that's the floor. As going back to my first podcast where I was talking about Texas, and I was saying that in 2016, 8.9 million people voted in Texas. And I made the prediction that more people would have voted in Texas in 2020 before the election day than voted in the whole election last time. And just looking at the calendar here, or at the state here, 8.4 million people have voted in Texas. So they have to get another 500,000 people to vote between now and the end of Friday to beat the entire electors of the last election. It's banana. Well, I don't know what's going on in Texas. They look like they could have two or three million extra voters just in that state and um, now as i've been following this site for the last couple of weeks a couple of points a couple of states stand out as being really really excellent for data and they are florida and nevada and the reason i like them is two things both states introduced huge a huge number of days to vote in person early voting so both nevada and florida have two weeks where you can waltz waltz into a polling station and cast your ballot in person and they also have very significant mail-in ballots where you can you could send in mail-in ballots for the last three weeks as a result they have they're looking they have huge numbers that have cast their vote. Nevada always has a, a, a massive early vote. Like, I think in the last election, over 65% of the people voted before the election day. And that was just a run-of-the-mill year. And so I like it from the way it's structured. It gives people who want to mail in a ballot and who want to vote in person plenty of opportunity to do so. One of the things I don't like is that a lot of states only have one day, the election day, to really show up and vote and that gives those states there's a natural advantage in that for democrats i think because trump has been encouraging everybody to vote in person whereas the democrats have been doing the opposite now the other great thing is that these two states because they are so well set up and their reporting structures on the early vote are excellent and they're high and they're a very high turnout already is that we can draw we can almost tell what's going to happen in these two states at this stage and the added added bonus is they're both swing states are considered swing states florida and nevada and the even better bonus is one of them voted blue the last time and one of them voted red so the thing to note is since monday trump is there's like there's been a red wave of Republican voters in Florida since last 
Monday. Um, and I don't know if it's the impact of the Hunter Biden laptop or whether it, the last debate had something to do with it, but or maybe it was just the natural way of Republicans to start voting the second week of early voting. But to give you an example, at the beginning of the early voting, the Democratic Party had about the Democrat Party had about six hundred and fifty thousand registered voter advantage. So the uh, six hundred and fifty thousand more Democrats, registered Democrats, had voted and returned ballots than Republicans. And people were saying, "Oh, there's a blue wave. There's a blue wave. Things are trouble, trouble for Trump." So. Since the early voting is starting, where people are showing up at the polls and the volume of mail-in ballots has started to drop off, we're we're seeing a surge in Trump vote. So that 650,000 advantage is now down to, as of yesterday, so I'm speaking to you on Thursday, as of end of voting Wednesday, that advantage was down to 205,000 advantage to Democrats. And you might think, oh, that's Democrats still well ahead. In 2016, at the end of the early vote, at the end of the early voting, Democrats had a 96,000 vote advantage. So registered Democrats outnumbered registered Republicans by 96,000 votes in the early vote. Now, if you factor into this, the Democrat Party have been encouraging their voters to vote by mail and that nearly 80% of mail-in ballots have been returned in Florida, that it is unlikely that in Democrats, there are enough Democrats that are going to show up to vote on the day. And what we're seeing now is that the Trump, the, this Trump tactic of getting people to vote in person is paying, is, is working in this state at least. So what you can say really is Trump won 2016 in Florida by 100 roughly 115,000 votes. And he did that even though 96,000 the Democrats had a 96,000 vote advantage in the difference between registered Democrats and registered Republicans. Obviously, you have your independents and they're almost a third of the electorate as well. So um, they obviously, the independents in the last election obviously broke strongly for Trump because they made up that 96,000 gap if we consider that all Republicans voted for Republicans, all Democrats voted for Democrats. That's obviously, you know, they didn't. But, like, what we can see is the independents broke for Trump in the last election. And what we're seeing in the last couple of days is that Trump, like, Trump has reduced that margin down by 400,000 up to Wednesday, and he has two more days of early voting. So the chances are he's going to be in at least as good a shape as 2016 come election day and probably in better shape and if you factor in that he has a huge advantage on election day because he's his campaign is the one that's focused on getting voters to vote on election day so i'm not a betting man at the moment (laughs) i wouldn't bet in this election but i would bet on i don't know what the odds are in this state but um i would i'd be hugely surprised if Trump isn't the favourite. And what I'd say is, if you want to bet in this election, bet on individual states. And I would definitely bet on Florida, although I'd say Trump is probably the favourite here at this stage because 
of the way the vote's trending. The other piece of advice I would give people that want to know what's going on with this election is to stop looking at polls, completely stop looking at polls, and start looking at bookies. Start looking at odds. So if you want the odds of this election, go on to any of the Las Vegas bookies or any whatever country in Ireland looking Paddy Power. Look at the state odds for value. So where I would say there's value, and I looked this one up. I didn't look up the Florida one, but I looked up the Nevada one because Trump's an outsider here, and he lost Nevada by about four points in the last election. But what I can say is the in-person voting is trending for Trump. Now, a lot of people have voted in Nevada. So if we take 800,000 people have voted in Nevada, the electorate in Nevada is up to 1.4 million, I think, in this election. So if we figure that there's probably only another 400,000 people to vote, he has, if we look, I can have a quick look at what's going on in Nevada at the moment. But let's see, we'll know, you'll know by Friday if he's going to win it or not. And I'd say if you're taking a gamble, this today is the day to take it. But we'll have a look and see. And bum, bum, bum. So Nevada is... So bear with me a second. So as of today, 331,000 Democrats have voted and 287,000 Republicans. So he has that down to 43,000. So they have a 43... Democrats have a 43,000 vote advantage. Right, and that is of yesterday. Okay, now there's 183. Okay, so that is for Tuesdays of the... Let's have a look and just get the exact numbers. I think that's only Tuesdays. If you go into the actual state, they've only reported up to Tuesday in Nevada. Oh, yeah, so they have updated figures here. Now. So statewide, 416,000 per person. Mm, it's at 69 thousand so one hundred and twenty eight thousand Democrats have voted in person and one hundred and ninety six thousand Republicans have showed up in person. So that gives Trump a roughly sixty eight thousand vote advantage, but he has a big disadvantage the early mail the mail ballot, the overall. So as of today okay, so we have three hundred and twenty thousand Republicans have voted. 366,000 Democrats have voted. Right, so there's 46,000 of a difference there. And that, yeah, it's not looking like, yeah, so he's got that 40, he's got that 40,000 um, voter disadvantage. So it's not insurmountable by any means, but he's not, he's not eaten into the, he's not eaten into the deficit like he was. But I would say that I think the odds on Nevada flipping to Trump are three to one. They're definitely, they're definitely worth. He's definitely worth the shot. Like, yeah. So the mail-in ballots are no. So I would say that Trump, he's a forty-five thousand uh, disadvantage there in the early vote. Yeah, you see, I think that's just about. It was trending all week where he was eating into the lead. What I can see from yesterday's figures is. I think he had a 45,000 vote gap yesterday, and he has a 46,000 vote gap today. So he hasn't met any grounds in the last 24 hours. So that's holding steady. There's been a response there of some description by the Democrats. So that would, um, it's tight there, but it's definitely not, um, he definitely can win that state because I would say at the end, you, at the end of Thursday and Friday, you'll know if he has it. If he has that, 
if he has if he has it uh, if he can keep it to forty to forty five thousand that kind of a gap he's a great chance of winning and we'll just have to wait and see on that because Democrats outnumber registered Democrats outnumber registered Republicans by quite a bit the only thing I would say finally on that state is to keep an eye on there's been a a few lawsuits in this state about mail-in ballots so i would say keep an eye on what's going on and well i'll keep an eye on what's going on sit back and relax um but if you take in how many mail-in ballots are being returned it doesn't really give you it gives you the total but it doesn't give you date they were returned if you see a, a huge number of mail-in ballots going in the last day, that's what I'm looking for. Because any, if there's lunatics out there sending their mail-in ballot in the day of the election, you know that's crazy behavior. Like because you're taking off a risk that it's going to get postmarked correctly, you know it's going to get picked up correctly, and you know if there's suddenly forty thousand vote ballots going getting postmarked on the day of the election, I'd be highly questionable. It'd be highly questionable in my mind, anyway. So, yeah, so I would say, I think the odds here are three to one. I, 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 I just have a feeling he'll do, I, I have a feeling he's going to flip this state. Um, although it hasn't moved significantly in his favour overnight. It's that, it's that 40,000 40, vote difference is, you know, if independence swing for Trump, he'll make it up, no problem. And he's going to have a vote. He's going to have, a, a, he's going to have an advantage on, on, He's going to have advantage on election day, um, just based on the volume of Democrats that have mailed in their vote already. Okay, so that's the roundup of those two swing states again. And I'm going to only be focused on states I can give you really accurate data on. So Texas, Florida, Nevada. I'll get into North Carolina tomorrow because, again, that's one that Trump needs to win or Biden needs to win. If Biden flipped it, he'd be, you know, delighted. Um, the visibility in a lot of these other states aren't great because a lot of them are just mail-in ballots and they don't even split them by Democrat-Republican. Um, but we'll, we'll, keep a, we'll keep an eye on those two swing states in the next couple of days and we'll take a dive into North Carolina tomorrow. So... That's, oh my God, there's an hour and five minutes gone. So I will just say thanks for listening to me, if you're still with me, and uh, we'll see you in our next podcast. Blame and hide.
never get old. 